Live International Outreach Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast and our other resources, visit wordalive.org. This week's sermon comes to you from our special guest, Rick Joyner. We hope you enjoy this message. I was uh, just pondering, uh, I remember it was almost 30 years ago that um, a friend asked us to visit his church in Fort Worth, Texas. His name was Jack Taylor. He was a real well-known Baptist preacher. I think at one time he was probably the most popular Baptist preacher. And I understand he had the uh, was a best-selling writer for a long time from the Baptist, but he great guy, and I love Jack. So we traveled across town to, uh, I was way over in East Dallas, traveled over Fort Worth to visit his church, and I uh, got there, and it was amazing. A lot of people there said, Jack, this is great. How's your church doing? He says, great. This church is dying slower than any church I've ever pastored. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, now that's happening in America right now. It really is happening. The church is dying in its present form. And uh, I think the present form of church and church life has served its purpose. It's done a great, it's gotten us here, but it can't carry us any further. There has to be radical change. And radical change is coming. I only know, have a few insights. You know, all, as much as we think we know, none of us know more than part. So you have to take what parts I share and put it together with what parts you know or others share. But, you know, the part that I've seen is uh, just part, but one of the ways it's going to change the really powerful powerhouse churches are going to be built on a foundation of koinonia, not ecclesia. Now, you know the difference. These are the two main words. I just recognize my friend, Justice, uh, here. Aren't you Judge, uh, uh, Judge Parker right here? Good to see you again. I get focused before meeting people. I saw you walk by, but I don't recognize people until uh, I break off that focus. <laughs> I can stare you right in the eye and not see you when I, when I get in that thing trying to hear the Lord and focus on what to do. And so don't be offended if I trip over you or something. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, the, uh, you know, one of the ways we're going to change is to build on the foundation of koinonia, which is the way you pronounce that in the South. Its real pronunciation is Kinania. I get emails from Greece all the time about this and other, uh, they wear me out on this, but I think the South pronounces everything right anyway. <laughs> you know, we take, we take language and perfect it. <laughs> and so, uh, <clears throat> but I'm gonna call it Koinonia. We're in the South, I'm safe, but uh, Koinonia, is more than just fellowship. It's translated fellowship in scripture. It's translated communion, which is not just a ritual. It comes from the words common union. And, uh, but it 
Koinonia is really a bonding together to such a degree that the parts cannot be separated. They will die if they separate. And that was what the church was established on. Don't you get the sense in the book of Acts that, uh, that they were kind of making it up as they went? Okay, we got this problem. Let's fix it. What do we do? Okay, let's do, let's call them deacons. <laughs> you know, and this whole major thing of church structure. But one of the most amazing things about church structure is its simplicity. But Ecclesia speaks more to the structure of the church and the government and all that, which is needed. But I don't think we can get where we're supposed to go if we build on a foundation of Ecclesia instead of a foundation of Koinonia. And when you get the life flowing, when you have that bonding together and those who, who are called together, then you do need some government, you do need structure and all. But one of the, the geniuses to me of the church government is its simplicity. And, uh, but it happens because there's so much life there. We've got to start with the life. Now, I've tried to do it the other way, which I now call the wrong way. It's just getting the cart in front of the horse. And, uh, and you can gather a lot of people. You can get them excited. You can get them mobilized. But I remember one time I had an experience with the Lord when he said, you know, you're not building churches. You're building franchises. So they all serve the same burger, the same Coke, and the same fries. And, you know, the Lord will bless many things he won't inhabit. He'll visit many things he will not inhabit. But the first two disciples who followed him asked him what I think is still the most important question that we ask, that we start with, Rabbi, where do you dwell? Where's your dwelling place? Where do you want to live? You know, not just where do you bless, not just what you bless, not just what you visit. And we've enjoyed and had some major visitations of the Lord, but he didn't stay. Not in his manifest presence. He's always with us. We know that by his holy, but his manifest presence, which is what Moses asked for. He said, Lord, don't lead us up from here if your presence doesn't go with us. How else can we be distinguished? We're not going to be distinguished by our government, by our order, by our organization. Besides, we're not called to be an organization. We're called to be a family. When we cease to be a family and start becoming an organization, we lose the essence of what we're called to be. And uh, now I have met the Lord in some really weird places lately. And I'll be frank with you, uh, in your typical churches, which I, I rarely get to speak in churches, I mostly speak in conferences and things like that, but, and I love to speak at churches. I'm a church man. I believe you've got to have, I, I believe you absolutely have to be a part of a strong local church, but with Koinonia, but you have to have that 
to mature in Christ. And uh, one scripture says that. 1 John 1, 7. If we abide in the light, as he is in the light, we have koinonia. He didn't say we have ecclesia. But you will have a fellowship and a bonding together with fellow believers on a level where you cannot be separated. I remember one little church in North Carolina I went to visit one time. And I was a very young preacher and and uh, nobody should have invited me to speak to their church then, but <laughs> they uh, they did. And I said, "Hey, what's going on? What are you? What's going on here now?" And they said, "Well, we're all considering praying about whether we should all move to California." I said, "The whole church?" They said, "Yeah." I said, "Why would you do that?" Because one brother in the church had been called to. California, he, he knew he had to move to California, was supposed to, and the church couldn't imagine not going with him. They said, if he's called, we must all be called. And that, they were just, are we all supposed to go? I mean, that's, they were touching on Koinonia. And I've only been in a handful of churches in the world or fellowships or any, anything where I felt like they're touching Koinonia. Now, I would say that about my own church. I think every now and then we get a taste of it, a whiff of it. But we're, I would say, looking at us, my home church there at Fort Mill, we're, we're after it, but we're by no means there. No means. But we are in pursuit. But, uh, and it's okay, but we need to pursue together. But what are we doing to build on Koinonia? What are we doing to build Koinonia? Not just get people coming. I've, I know how to do that. I've been able to do that before. Get large crowds. And uh, still can. Some, we're overflowing our conference this week. We don't have any more room in the end. Didn't have any more room a long time ago. <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to be packed. People will come. But to me, that what's important is where are they six months from now? Where are those people who came six months from now? And how are they bonded together? How are they linked together? And uh, what's happening that is building the body of Christ, not just gathering people? My opinion, most churches today are like big sheep pens where the sheep are all herded into a pen and we throw them food a couple of times a week. food and a little water, but they're not built into anything. You know, Israel, when they came out of Egypt, said they were a great mixed multitude. Before they got to the Red Sea, it says they were marching in martial array. There's something to that we've got to get about the army we're called to be. We're not an army now, we're a mob. And that's what the first crusade was. It was a mob. And you know what happened to it? They met the enemy with great faith, or what they thought was great faith. Absolutely sure they're going to wipe out the, the infidels. The infidels wiped them out, totally wiped out, the first crusade. 
first meeting with the enemy. Now, there's a lot that has to happen, and it can happen fast. With the Lord, a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. He can do in one day what we think would take a thousand years. But I think there's a way we've got to position ourselves, and there's certain things we've got to see, and we've got to understand the way we've been doing it is not working anymore. It is not working. Now, it may keep us going. It may be enough bread and water to keep us going till next week or whatever, but we've got to be built into a mighty force. And one of the encouraging things is, you know, we're, we're entering some of the darkest times ever. But that's when the Lord raised up the greatest prophets. That's when the greatest moves of God, greatest revivals took place in the darkest times. So I'm looking for a revival, and I can see it. I can see where it's going to happen and where it's coming, and I'm pretty excited about that. But I don't think he, this time he wants us to gather people just to keep on doing the same thing we've been doing. It's got to be changed. I know, I think I was just looking at my notes in 2014 when I was here, I shared that message I had about purging. How when, you know, Pershing was our commander, U.S. commander in World War One, And uh, how, you know, when he gets to, to Europe, you know, the prime ministers of France and Britain met him. And uh, this guy, now you know Pershing's story. I shared, was anyone here during that message? Okay, three of you. Quickly, I understand this is a different meeting tonight, but uh, Pershing was a first lieutenant when he was 39 years old. Oldest first lieutenant in the Army. He couldn't get promoted because he wasn't political. His devotion and his focus was to be the best soldier he could be, but to get promoted, you had to be political. You had to promote yourself. You knew had to know the right people, and that's why you got promotions in the Army at that time. He wasn't good at that. So he was the oldest first lieutenant in the Army, but his resolve was, he said, if I retire as a first lieutenant, I will be the best first lieutenant this Army ever had. And it was in, you know, he got attached to the Rough Riders, Teddy Roosevelt's um, command in the Spanish-American War, and in the uh, battle, you know, up uh, San Juan Hill, he uh, distinguished himself for his courage and leadership, and he got promoted to captain, one more level. He's still a junior officer. Remained a junior officer until he was 44 years old. Oldest captain in the Army. Then Roosevelt becomes president, Near the end of his term, he remembers Pershing. And he asked somebody, where's that guy Pershing? What's happening? Find out what's going on with Pershing. He found out he's still a captain. So he promoted him all the way from captain to brigadier general. <laughs> and the Lord gave me this story to study because he said, "This you need to understand some things about the way he's going to choose his leadership that's coming. He was a model of a type of leadership. I tell you, there are a lot of overlooked, unnoticed people. Nobody knows who they are, but they have been faithful. 
absolutely faithful, devoted. Maybe they just have led a prayer meeting or something, but they have been absolutely faithful and determined they're going to do the best at leading this prayer meeting for the Lord anybody's ever done. They're going to, they just, they're doing it as unto the King of Kings. And you're going to see some people just total unknowns, junior officers get promoted all the way to the top really fast. Okay, so he got promoted all the way to Brigadier General, one step. The next year, he was elevated again and made the commander of all U.S. Expeditionary Forces in World War I, when, when we had just entered the war. So he goes over, and the prime ministers corral him and say, we are so thankful you're here. We, are, we just need your reinforcements in the trenches. We have been in this battle so long, and, and he did not disrespect what they had done. He had a great deal of appreciation for the incredible endurance, perseverance, courage, and all they had had in this trench warfare. But he listened to these two prime ministers, and then he stood up and he said, gentlemen, I have considered your strategies and rejected them. And he walked out on them. He walked out on two of the most powerful people in the world. He said, we're not going to fight that way. And, uh, you know, what are we going to do? What are these, these crazy, obnoxious, arrogant Americans? But listen, I believe the future leadership has got to, this revival and all these people coming in are not so we can fill up the pews and people can die the way they've been dying. Maybe slowly, but they're dying. They're not going to die in the trenches. They're going to get in the fight. And the commander-in-chief of the Allied forces was a French general, and he listened to Pershing, and he agreed with him. He says, Pershing said, I don't even want my troops to learn trench warfare. He said, I don't even want to, I don't want them to know anything about it. He said, I'll loan you some of my officers because I want them to get a taste of combat. Then I want them right back. He said, we came here not to die in the trenches, but to attack the enemy and win the war. Wow. To this French general's great credit, he saw the potential. He turned Pershing loose. You know, that was when the Bolshevik rev Revolution happened. Russia collapses. All the German troops from the Russian front were then shifted to the Western front, where they were about to greatly overwhelm the Allied forces. And sure enough, spring offensive, they broke through the lines. They were attacked. It looked like the war was over and the Germans have got it in the bag. But... They let the Americans attack, and they attacked the strongest point of the German line, the Ardennes Force, where nobody, everybody thought it was impenetrable. Well, Pershing knew that's probably where they also have their worst troops or weakest positions, and they penetrated there, and it was devastating. I mean, we lost a lot of men in a short period of time, but Pershing, just when it looked like the Germans are going to totally win this thing, Pershing broke through the German lines and the, Ger the whole German army had to retreat to keep from being surrounded. And just a couple of weeks before, it looked like the Germans got it in the bag. Now the Kaiser's fleeing 
and the Germans are having to surrender. I'm just saying, we need new strategies. We need new thinkings. We need to break out of the prison of these walls that we've been in. This is not church life. You know, I, now I believe our services and meetings are important. And I think the food that we get is important. But real church life is Monday through Saturday. It's what we do. That's the front lines is out there in real life. We just have these gatherings to get, get some food, get some ammunition, go back in the fight. Sometimes we've got to get healed of our wounds and everything else, but we've got to get back in the fight. And we need to have measurable advances. We need to have clear objectives and know that we're a part of an offensive that has taken our objectives. And then once we take them, we can hold them. I think we're going to have to start thinking in military terms a little better. By the way, you can buy my latest book, The Army of the Dawn. <laughs> Has all the answers. Matter of fact, my latest two books, The Army of the Dawn and The Army of the Dawn, Volume 2. But this came from hours and hours spending with friends of mine who were top military leaders of ours, generals, and uh, and it is something I've studied military history most of my life, along with church history, because I knew this was coming. Two things I tell you, you're going to see the church become that it is not right now. Church is many things. We're called a bride. We're called a holy nation. We're called, you know, a field, a building, a temple, a priesthood. We're also called an army, and we're called a city. And where do you see either of those anywhere in the church right now? I think they're going to be the main things we see coming next. We're going to become the city. We're called to be the city set on a hill. The bride is called a city that comes down. What does it mean for us to be a city? And then what does it mean for us to be that army? So I'm just sharing my little parts you know, we get, but I also think, you know, the um, we've really got to be in touch with, you know, our purpose on Monday through Friday as the body of Christ. Wherever you are, you should be taking ground. You should actually be taking dominion in that place. In your office, you should have under spiritual dominion. And... Uh, and I think the four main purposes of man that we see in Genesis are still the main, four main purposes of every one of us. Walk with God, you know, fellowship with God, purpose number one. Nothing else works without that. But after that, there was something else. You know, we're called to do work. You realize they say that any human being, now psychologists say any human being will go insane if deprived of meaningful labor. We have 94 million Americans out of work right now. Yet they say our unemployment rate's 5%. You do the math. This is called common core math. How <laughs> can you have a third of American, employable Americans out of work 
What our unemployment rate being 5%? It's a lie. It's a deception. If you want to know the real employment rate, it's the employ employment participation number that counts. And we know that's only two-thirds of employable Americans are now working. You wonder why the whole nation's going crazy. Deprived of meaningful labor. So we're called to, to do work. He said, cultivate the garden. You've got a job to do. You've got a purpose. Bear fruit and multiply. How many of you have a vision for having an insignificant life? <laughs> you know, he put it in us to do it and do it big. That's not ambition. Ambition's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with ambition. He gave it to us. Put it in our heart. What is wrong is selfish ambition. That's what's evil, but ambition. All of us should, we should be ambitious. We should be saying, I'm going to take over this neighborhood. I'm going to take over this city. I'm going to take over, you know, we should have certain things and, and just step out in faith in some of these. Isn't that what Jonathan did? We're just going to see if the Lord's with us or not. If he's not, we're dead. Guess what? The mortality rate hovers somewhere around 100%. You're going to die. Why not die at least trying to do something great? Why not get in a fight and just do something, <laughs> you know? I think if you start a revival and a lot of people get saved that God didn't intend to start, he'll forgive you. There are worse things you could be doing. <laughs> and <clears throat> then the fourth thing we were called to do is take dominion. And there should be something that gets provoked when the devil gets shots in. Gets provoked. But you know, the, uh, I love speaking to Christians and believers and, and all, but I've had the greatest anointing with total heathen lately. And uh, one of them, I was invited to be a delegate to what's called the World Public Forum on Civilizations and Religions. It's called a Dialogue of Civilizations. And a friend of mine was one of the co-founders of it with the foreign minister of Russia and one of the top Muslim Islamic scholars in the world, the three of them, formed this dialogue of civilizations. And I think I was one of the first evangelicals to ever go to that thing. And they have, there were prime ministers and scholars and, you know, uh, or religious leaders, but of every religion, top Hindus, top imams from every country, uh, Islamic country. And uh, we had top guys from terrorist organizations were there. Hezbollah and some of the others, and uh, top rabbis, all in the same room from Israel. And they gave me, because I was friends of one of the co-founders, they gave me one of the, they give everybody a 10-minute slot that they ask to speak, but they only have time for 60 people to speak during this thing. And if you're a prime minister, they'll cut you off when you're 10 minutes up. But I was determined to preach the gospel. I said, I've got all the top imams, 
mullahs, all the, about 60%, maybe 70% of the religious people there were Islamic. And, or from the Vatican or, you know, high churches in Europe mostly, and uh, if they were Christians, and then Hindus and everything. I said, I, I've got to preach the gospel. I may not get out of here alive, but I am going to preach the gospel. I was just waiting for, how do I do this? I've got 10 minutes. How do I do it? And there were some obnoxious guys from the Hezbollah there. And uh, everybody was just jumping them. And, and uh, I shouldn't say everybody because there were a lot of people on their side. But um, they were getting jumped. Some people were talking about the evils of fundamentalism and everything. So I saw that as my opening. So when I got up, first thing I did, I shocked them. They, did, they hated me already because I'm a Christian and then I'm an American. I had two strikes. I stepped up to the plate with two strikes. I could see those spiritual stones in their hands. And, uh, and I apologized to them. I said, first thing I want to do is I want to tell you how sorry I am for the spiritual pollution and filth that is coming out of our country, out of Hollywood, out of some of the stuff that's being exported all over the world and defiling the world. I said, I am really sorry about that. I said, I'm not, I'm thankful to be American, but I am really sorry for this spiritual pollution that's been coming out of my country. And I am. This is evil. And it's like they weren't expecting that. And then it just happened to be right after the 2008 crash, which I said, I got another little thing we got to apologize for. We kind of created this earthquake throughout the world's economy. But we'll fix it. Don't worry, we'll fix it. <clears throat> and, uh, but then I said, you know, the fundamentals, you know, I understand what you're saying, but I said our problem with our faith, Christian faith, is we're not doing the fundamentals like we should. We've abandoned the fundamentals. I said, those who are the greatest in any field, those who are the best in any field, sports, business, government, anything, they're going to be the ones who do the fundamentals the best, who do the basics the best. And I said, we haven't been doing the basics best, and the basics of our faith is loving God and loving each other. I said, we're not doing that too well. And then I got into how much God loved us, how you can't see anything about God without loving him more because he is love. I don't think you can ever see anything about God without loving him more, if it's truth about him. And how this is our main calling and our main job description as human beings, what our faith sees, our main job description that determines if we're a successful human being or not, how much do we love God? And then how much do we love each other? And look how much he loved us, given his own son for our redemption. I saw tears well up in their eyes. You know, the Muslim, the Quran does not have the word love in it. That's not a concept they have. God doesn't love them. And they can never measure up to their God. They can never approve. The only way they can be guaranteed that they're going to be in paradise is blow themselves up and a bunch of other people. Be a martyr somehow. It's the only way they can be sure of their salvation. 
It's a terrible thing. Well, I went after it. I knew I went way past my 10 minutes. I kept looking at the moderators. Finally, I asked them. I said, where's my time? They said, keep going, keep going. <laughs> so I did. I just kept going. Then they said, will you take questions? So I did. Now, you can't believe the questions I got. And then after that, I could not eat a dinner. I couldn't go to the restaurant or anything. We were in this big, we were in paradise, I tell you that, where they hold this thing. But uh, I would have just a bunch of them wanting to eat with me and talk and ask questions. And I bonded with some of these terrorists. It's like we were, I even invited them to come to our place, uh, hoping they couldn't get through security. <laughs> 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 no, I would have enjoyed showing them hospitality. I really would have. Because I think God does love them. And I, I tell you, I, what I appreciate about these people, they want God so bad, they would blow themselves up. I would that we had that kind of devotion, not to blow ourselves up. But you know what I'm saying? The kind of, they, they want God so bad, and you just feel this about them. And he loves them. He wants them. I think we're going to have one of the greatest revivals. We're personally, our missionaries, we have missionaries all around ISIS right now. They're having unbelievable things happen. And they're doing some incredible things. God is showing up there in a big way. And uh, I think we're going to have a major in-gathering. I think some of the greatest prophetic voices, some of the greatest true apostolic ministries you're going to see coming out of Islam. Uh, I've been saying that for a long time. But <clears throat> then I got involved in this crazy uh, documentary. My daughter wrote me into it. She's a big climate change activist. I'm a climate change skeptic. And uh, so they were doing this big documentary. I don't know if any of you saw it called Years of Living Dangerously. It's like 14 or 16 episodes, and, and uh, we were in one of those, but it was, a, it was a major production. James Cameron produced it, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jerry Wynn, uh can't remember his last name, but three major producers. And they used the best crews. They used all A-list actors and actresses, and our part was you know, mostly me dialoguing with a scientist. They would have an actor there and my daughter, mostly all ganging up on me. And a part of their storyline was to get this southern, evangelical, conservative, Christian pastor converted to believe it in climate change. And I went into it honestly wanting to believe. I just hadn't seen anything that convinced me. I didn't want to believe or disbelieve. I wanted to know the truth. I said, if I get chances, and I got like hours at a time. Twice I got two eight-hour periods to dialogue with two of the top scientists in the world. And, uh, and I wanted to know the truth. I said, if this is true, it's important, but I want to know it's true. And I finished that whole thing more convinced than ever it's not. Okay, now one of the scientists I met, I think it was one of the greatest, he's supposed to be the greatest 
physicist and mathematician may be alive today, and he's the only, in my opinion, true scientist I've met in that thing. All these others, they were named to the list of the 100 most influential people in the world. Not just scientists, but people in the world. And I didn't even think they were legitimate scientists. If I share with you some of the things they were doing, but I, I kept going to it. I said, look, I'm a pilot. I understand weather. I had to understand weather to live. I was a professional pilot, and uh, I had to understand climate. I said, when I started flying, the weather forecasts were not very good. And I learned right away, if I'm going to survive at this job, I've got to get better at this than the National Weather Service. So I studied everything I could on weather, talked to all the old guys, everything. Just, and I think I got pretty good, but I did my own forecasting. And I got better. I think when I wasn't too long when I was better than the, the uh, meteorologist in a lot of ways. I got pretty good at it, but I understood what was going on. Let me just throw this out. I don't know if, Kerry, but I was sharing with him. I said, your models are not working. Your forecasts are not working. And I brought him some of the stuff. I said, this is what you forecast would happen by 2005. Wasn't even close. I mean, you could have hardly missed it worse. Look at all these forecasts. Find one of your forecasts where you were even close. Why? You know, one of the things I learned was the biggest impact on climate is the sun, of course. Number two biggest impact on climate, and climate changes all the time. It's a natural process. It changes all the time. But the second biggest factor in changing climates it's what's called the Atlantic and Pacific Decadal Oscillations, which controls the currents, controls things like El Nino, El, El whatever. And it's number two for changing climates and weather on the Earth, second only to the sun. They were not using those decadal oscillations in their models. And I'd point that out to them, and they did, it was like they didn't know what I was talking about. So I said, finally, I said, look, if you guys want accurate models, go to Wall Street. They're going to have accurate climate models because they don't have a political dog in the fight. They just, they're betting billions of dollars, though, on what the climate's going to do. Wow. I said, you will find. So they wouldn't do it, so I did it. I called up my friend who's one of the top economists, I think, in the world today, I said, who on Wall Street do they use for their climate models? And they gave me the name of this lady, I, and she sent me every thing she had. Her models were unbelievably accurate. Unbelievably accurate. She was basing sun first, decadal oscillation second. This one thing. So I'm just saying, by the way, you guys know this in the South, you can say almost anything to anybody, just finish it with, I'm just saying, and you can get away with it. <laughs> Isn't that right? See, this is Southern theology. But it works. And if you want to say something really evil or bad about somebody else, all you have to do is finish it with, but bless their heart, you can get away with it. It's good. You're good. All right. 
So uh, I'm just saying, bless their hearts. But <clears throat> no, they've got a problem. That's a political agenda. But anyway, I'm at this premiere when they finished all these things. We worked on this thing for a year. And I'm at the premiere. All these, almost all of them were Hollywood people or top liberal financiers, major people. And I, was, I didn't think they would want to see me coming. And I didn't want to go, but I was going to go there to protect my daughter from all these liberals which I hadn't protected her very well from when I let her go to the University of North Carolina. I'm just saying, bless their hearts. <laughs> so I'm trying to make up for this. So I wanted to go, and uh, Jesse was asking about Gordon Pennington. Where'd Jesse go? Oh, there he is, okay. But uh, Gordon showed up there. We're at the Ford Foundation place, but... Uh, anyway, they, they drag, I walked through the door, producers were dragging me, wanting me to take pictures with them and their families, and I mean, it was like, I was a bigger star than the stars that were there, and my daughter, and they kept talking about my daughter and I throughout the thing, during the premiere, and about the thing, I said, what is going on? But it kept coming, how appreciative they were that a Christian would even do something, would even go to it, even though they never converted me, I messed up their thing, you know, their theme. It didn't work, but they still just so appreciated that I would do that. And I went into it thinking they're going to make me, either I'm going to convert or they're going to make me look like the biggest idiot in the world the way they edit this thing, but they didn't. Made me look like a little idiot. <laughs> but... But I didn't care about it. I really went into it wanting to know the truth and wanting to do this with my daughter. But I was talking to a few of them. One of them was Laura Turner, Ted Turner's daughter, and uh, some of the ladies from the Sierra Club at this premiere. And I quoted a scripture, and I felt power go out. I mean, it went, I felt it. I hadn't felt anything like that in church in 20 years. And Laura screamed. She goes, that almost knocked me down. And one of these ladies from the Sierra Club said, that almost knocked me down the stairs. And I turned around and looked, and everybody in the room staring at us. They all felt it. I spent the rest of the night. I was the last one to leave, I think. People lined up wanting to talk. And then I went back to my hotel room, and I said, Lord, I didn't think you'd go to something like that. <laughs> what was that all about? And you know what he said? He said, you were with my friends tonight. I said, Lord, they don't even know you. He said, yeah, but they will. He said, but friends love the same things. And they love something that is very dear to me that my people don't even pay much attention to. He said, I so love the world. He said, I love this earth. And then he asked me a question. He said, you always thought it was because of your weapons that I had to return lest no flesh survive. I said, yes. He said, did you ever consider it's how you're destroying the earth? He said, never occurred to me. 
And uh, the scripture I had quoted is out of Revelation 11, where the Lord says, I will destroy those who destroyed the earth. Now, this is something, too, we have really got to take seriously. And uh, I felt a bonding with these people, almost like the terrorists. I think there was a common thing there. <laughs> but uh, I'm just saying. <laughs> just. <laughs> but uh, I was over in Atlanta. Laura had wanted to have this big lunch, and she brought in a bunch of people. And uh, so I went over to Atlanta, this thing, and... One of the guys who was a producer for 60 Minutes, some of you things been on forever, but one of the producers, 60 Minutes, he came down just to meet me for lunch, and he came running across the room, hugged me like a long-lost friend. And I hardly even remembered him through this thing because, you know, you, we dealt with so many people and all. But there was some kind of bonding that took place, something that I, where I still today think of some of those guys you know, from that world public forum, I miss them, you know, and some of those guys, and they've, they're still asking me to do stuff with them. They want to do another whole thing now. They want me to convert this time, but I want them to convert. <laughs> I got a lot of letters and, or emails from them after that thing thanking me for not compromising. And uh, but why not, you know, he was in us as much greater than he was in the world. And listen, we're under an onslaught right now. We can easily push back. It can easily be pushed back. Lord, one of the words he gave me for this year was, this is the year that the devil is going to overplay his hand. And it's going to be obvious. And uh, I was sharing with Kent and uh, a little while ago, and we were talking, just some of these guys were about common core curriculum. Have you guys gotten into what that is? This is so bizarre. If the devil has ever overplayed his hands, trust me, it is in this thing. I did, just did five television programs with Don Brown, who's the guy who wrote the book Treason. They're doing a documentary out of, I mean, a movie out of now. But uh, Don was a Navy JAG lawyer one of the best investigative lawyers I've ever met, he went after this common core, just to understand it. He didn't know if it was good or bad or whatever, just felt compelled. You cannot believe the stuff he is in this common core thing. Now, <clears throat> let me give you a five-minute thing on this. This will be worth the price of admission tonight, okay? This is something we have got to go, and do your own study of it. Do your own investigation. If you watch these programs, we'll post them on our prophetic perspectives. Uh, you, you're going to be shocked. I mean, you are really going to be shocked. But Don, he's great at presenting the evidence and where it comes from. But let me just share just a couple of things about it. In the literature section, they removed all the classics. None of the classics are in there for reading or anything. You know what they got in there? Obama speeches. Executive orders. Now, how many kids, have you ever read an executive order? I had to read, well, I've read 
whole bills. I read the whole health care bill. And I should be considered a true Christian martyr. <laughs> I don't know of a worse torture you could go through than that thing. But can you imagine how that's going to make our kids love literature and reading? You cannot believe how dead and dry some this stuff is. But I'll tell you what it is. It's propaganda, too. I was a Marxist at one time. I was a hippie. Then I became a Marxist. And I was a serious one. I read every book by every top Marxist. I read all Marx stuff, Engels, Trotsky. I read uh, everybody, and I studied it. And that's why I quit being a Marxist. So this stuff is crazy. This is insanity. And then I went off into other tangents before finding the truth. But I know what Mar I can recognize Marxism. When I read stuff in that common core, I know what chapter and verse it is in the capitalist. You know, and uh, I was shocked at the Marxist propaganda in common core. It is blatant, it is outrageous, it's insane. If it could get worse, it does get worse. You can't believe the sex education books. One of the ones little kids are reading, how this 12-year-old get, girl gets raped in graphic, unbelievable graphic detail. Then how she later bonds with her rapist. And you know one of the main agendas right now, the LGBT thing, lower the age of consent. They're trying to get it right on down to children. They're going after our children. And this stuff is, it is unbelievably perverse, what is put in this common core. You know how they got the states into it? Bunch, held out a bunch of money. You know, if you'll sign, we want common standards, and everybody wants the same standards. But that's about all they said. We want to, we're going to come out with this thing so everybody's on the same page. We have common standards for everybody. Everybody assumes it has raised the standards. It's unbelievable the way it's lowering the standards. But uh, gave every, most of the states, all but four states, took the money. But without seeing this new curriculum, now, at least 26 states have risen up and are suing to get out of this deal. I mean, it's madness. Some of the most leftist teachers' unions have raised up about it and are outraged <laughs> at how bad this thing is. From the extreme left to the extreme right, everybody's against it that gets into it and sees what's in this thing. Now, this is something, does it get worse? Yeah, it gets worse. You ought to see the math. They teach math. They teach addition on a linear basis, which if you get into it and you get further, they don't. there's no uh, memorization of multiplication tables or anything like that. But the way they teach it, instead of stacking numbers, the way we add, the way we learn to add, you do it on a linear basis, which really messes up your mind in mathematics. Out of the box... Groups that have been through this curriculum for one year have gone backwards two grades, an average of two grades. 
it really messes you up. It gets worse. <laughs> they have math problems in there. I'm just using an example. Where three times four, I think it equals 12, don't you? Is that what three times four is, 12? Not 12 in Common Core. I'm not kidding you. I can't make this up. You know what the answer is? What the majority of the class answers. <laughs> if the majority of the class said it was 11, you were wrong if you said 12. Now, they brought in the guy to certify the Common Core math. You may have, some of you, any of you know this, already read all this, or some of you already know this. Brought in the guy who did the computations for Apollo moonshots as one of the guys, you know, he's one of the top guys at mathematics to certify this thing. He went ballistic. He went to the moon, you know, just about. He just, this is crazy. This is madness. This will wreck anybody's ability to do math. Can you imagine how far we would have missed the moon if we had to vote on the right answer? <laughs> but this thing is so crazy. And Don did such an incredible job of researching this. And we've got pretty good stuff in those programs. Watch it. But this kind of stuff, to me, if that's not the devil overplaying his hand, going way too far. And... Uh, but education, I was really provoked by this. And, uh, you know, it, it, to me, this is, it's in, intolerable. And I just inquired the Lord, said, Lord, what do we do? He just said, use your mantle of education. You're the light of the world. You're the illumination. You're education. Use the mantle you've been given. But sometimes you got to use the mantle to strike the waters. You know, there's a time to be angry. It says be angry, but do not sin. There's good anger. See, in Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time for everything. There is a time to be angry. I tell you, there's some things today, if we are not really angry about them, we're not awake anymore. We're not really alive. And we've got to... I believe stand up and speak out. But I was in Washington having breakfast. We were having breakfast with about 20 senators and congressmen one morning. And, you know, one of them pulled me aside afterwards and he said, you know, you would see a lot more courage in Washington if we saw any courage in the church. Where's the courage? You know, Donald Trump, you know, has brought out how one of the things he wants to do is to remove the 501c3 restraints off of the church. I don't think it's constitutional anyway, the 501c3 stuff, but I said, wait a minute. You, you know, he was making the point, I think it was a good point that you know, some bum down on the street has, can speak and influence society and culture more than a pastor now because a pastor is muzzled by these 501c3 laws. And there's some truth to that. But I said, no true pastor has been muzzled by that. 
No true pastor is going to not tell the truth because he's afraid of losing his tax-exempt status. No true watchman is going to be silent and not sound the alarm because they're afraid of losing their tax-exempt status. By the way, name a church anywhere that has lost its tax-exempt status. I'm part of that group of several thousand pastors now. Once a year, we preach a sermon that violates all the things in there and then send the sermon to the IRS. Say, come get us. <laughs> They've never come gotten anyone. You know why? They know it's unconstitutional. But there's, uh, we can, we, we've, got, we've got to stand on what I think God gave us in our Constitution. If we won't stand for these basic rights, we will lose them. If we don't stand in, what are we, who are we, what are we doing up here if we're not speaking the truth that is relevant to the times, to what people are facing now? We're losing our ultimate liberty and our ultimate freedoms right now. Let me just throw out a couple, I'm sure Judge Parker knows this. You know it's not constitutional? for the Supreme Court to decide what's constitutional or not? It's what John, I went back and read all Jefferson's stuff on judicial tyranny. It's like he was writing exactly for today, what is happening today. Where one judge, you know, it doesn't the Constitution say whatever's not, authority not specifically given to the federal government is reserved to the states and to the people. Mark the decline of education from when the federal government got in the education business. I think you can mark that decline from the same year that they formed the Department of Education in the federal government. They weren't given that authority by our Constitution. The states are going to do a whole lot better with that. And the communities with their uh, people. But, you know, we've got to stand up against these things and we... To me, the, the, the evil that has been done and the shredding of our Constitution has been done has been done mostly because of the ineptitude of the opposition. If somebody had stood, things could have been very different. And that's why everybody's so mad at their political party. You know? These guys promise they, they're going to go there and do this stuff. They get there and they morph into something entirely different. Don't do a thing. So what good does it do to believe the right things? And I, you know, I, I have to admit, you know, because this is what, when I talk to some of them, this is what I say. It's not enough to believe the right things. You've got to have the courage to stand for it. If you don't stand for it, you're not doing any good at all. And, you know, who's the first group that gets thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation 21? The cowards. The cowardly. We've got to stand for the truth. You're going to make a lot of people mad. Lord told me when he sent me into ministry, he said, if you do my will, you will continually have a large, he called it a large swirl of disgruntled people around you and people mad at you. So I have been really successful in the ministry <laughs> he has sent me to. 
Because <laughs> I always have a lot of people really mad. <clears throat> I just, I tell you who I'm afraid of being mad, though. It's getting there on that judgment day and hearing you were a shepherd and you didn't protect my sheep. You were a watchman and you did not sound the alarm. That's the only fear I live by. You're going to have people mad at you for anything you say. I'm just saying. <laughs> I tell you, we've got to start standing on the truth we've been entrusted with. And we don't have much longer to stand. But I, I, I appreciate what Trump's perspective, I appreciate that he wants to do what he wants to do, but he shouldn't have to do that to set us free. We should be boldly preaching the truth without compromise and a truth that is relevant to the times and that confronts the darkness of the times. The church is called to be a prophet and we're called to confront the darkness of the times. And we have fallen to the ultimate depravity of Isaiah 5 of starting to call good evil and evil good, honoring the dishonorable and dishonoring the honorable. We've been having a little transgender deal going on. And, you know, most Christians I know, they don't want to hurt anybody. They don't want to hurt transgenders. Sorry about that, but, you know, don't believe in the lifestyle. Believe it's sin. But, there, you know, there are, like seven, there are actually 17 things in Scripture the Lord calls an abomination, not just homosexuality. We ought to read that list pretty regularly. We want to see people saved, not hurt. But how, we've got to rise up against the tyranny of the minority, where one-tenth of one percent of the people are offended and demand their rights and take away the rights of the other 99.9%. How long are we going to let this go on? And we've got to start recognizing that if we're not offending people, we're not doing our job. Find one thing that Jesus did in the scriptures that he didn't offend people. Find one miracle, find one thing he said that didn't offend people. Somebody didn't criticize him, accuse him, or anything else. I've been looking for that one thing. No, it comes with the territory if we're going to walk in the truth. He said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. But that's the way they spoke of the false prophets. If we're afraid of people getting mad at us, and we don't have the pure and holy fear of the Lord. If we would have the pure and holy fear of the Lord, we wouldn't fear anyone else. If we've seen the king of kings, what is any man on earth? What are presidents? What are earthly kings? If we serve the king of kings and stand for him, I'm just saying. Bless your hearts. <laughs> I tell you, the whole world is ready to follow courage. Christians especially, they're bleeding away because they don't see it in the church anymore. I get the emails every week. Why don't I ever hear these things at my church? We need to. We've got to stand up against some of the stuff going on. If we're going to be the salt and light we're called to be, we have to. So...
I hate politics. I, I want to say this too. I am voting for Trump. I am really, I'm really excited about Trump. Yeah, I had a good meeting with him. I've been in some meetings, and and uh, he is a character. I'll tell you who he's like. I, you know, I think you can find every person is like somebody in the Bible. And uh, I usually try to link somebody. I meet who's he like, and that helps me to understand them better, where they're coming from. I'll tell you who Trump is like. One thing, he's more like every single one of Jesus' disciples than who most of us have in our mentality that the disciples were like. Listen, these were outlaws. These were crazies. <laughs> you look at the people he chose for his disciples. Which one of us would have chosen any of them? We wouldn't even let them in our home groups. <laughs> They're the ones he chose. But I knew right away when I met Trump who he was like, Peter. I think he's going to win. I actually think he's going to win pretty big. I'm not prophesying. I'm just saying. <laughs> but he's like Peter. And you know, Peter received one of the greatest blessings ever in the whole Bible Jesus himself said, blessed are you, Peter. Flesh and blood didn't reveal you this to you, but my Father in heaven, this is what the church is going to be built on. Here are the keys to the kingdom. Give you the keys to the kingdom. It looks like two minutes later, he's calling that same guy Satan. <laughs> Get behind me, Satan. One minute he's steering straight from heaven, the next minute he's steering hearing straight from hell. And you know what? Years later, he's doing the same thing. He's still doing it. Have you ever recognized that some of the people who create the greatest advances make the biggest mistakes? We want to throw them out. Those were the ones Jesus looked to build his church on. And... Uh, Years later, the youngest apostle has to rebuke him to his face. He's still making mistakes, but he, the Jesus did not take the keys away from him because Peter would use them. I think our mentality of Jesus needs a little adjusting. He was fierce. He was hard. He had some insults that, in my opinion, were even outside of Trump's. <laughs> this poor woman just wants her daughter healed, and he says, is it right for me to give the children's bread to the dogs? That was an insult. That was an unbelievable insult. And think of this. These guys, these are tough characters. They've been with Jesus three and a half years. The night before he's crucified, they are so afraid of him, they're afraid to ask him a question. Remember, John, you ask him. He called me Satan. He didn't call you Satan. 
know what I mean? I know we, we want to always see him as a lamb, but I tell you, he is also a lion, and he's coming back as the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's coming back with a rod of iron. And he's still the lamb. He's going to forever be known as the lamb. That's him too. Paul said, behold now the kindness and the severity of God. We've got to see both equally. But it's going to be a wild ride with Trump. One day you're going to be thinking, this is unbelievable. This is incredible. This is exactly what we needed. And the next day we're going to think, that came straight from the pit. <laughs> and it will have. It will have. We need this kind of character. I inquired of the Lord who years ago, several years, a couple of years ago, what our next president, who was, Lord, tell me who you, the next president's going to be. Who should we get behind? He said, I'm not going to tell you who the president is going to be because you're going to choose. Now, Lord knows who it will be. He knows the end from the beginning. He said, but it's up to us to choose. But I know who he was going to provide for us that is his choice if we would choose him. And God's people don't always choose his choice. They didn't choose it with Saul. They paid a price for it. You understand? We don't, not everyone who gets up there is God's choice for that. We often, and here it says, the heavens of the heavens of the Lord, the earth, he's given into the hands of the sons of men. We're going to choose what we get. But he told me, he said, patriotism is going to win. And he gave me a sign. He said, as a sign, the New England Patriots were going to win the Super Bowl that year. And this was early in the season when he spoke to me. I said, Lord, can you give me another sign? I believe you, but there's another way we can do this. <laughs> and I thought I was a false prophet right until the last play of the game. <laughs> but I, it was not until the last play when they actually won it. I didn't tell everybody. I just told our man cave and all the men in the church. I just told them about it, and they knew, but they were about to stone me. If so, uh, But anyway, he said, you need an alley fighter. You need somebody who can fight in every direction at once and is not going to get tired of fighting. they got to be a fighter because we're about to go through some unbelievable conflict yeah. as a nation. Now, I was for Ted Cruz. I've known Cruz, been a number of meetings with him, and, and I, I liked him, and I know a lot of Christians didn't trust him, and they may have had some discernment. Some things surfaced at the end that weren't too good about it. I think Cruz, I still like him. I still think he's a, one of the good guys. And uh, But until Trump announced right then, I had to say, you know, yeah, I like them both. I would like to have seen them work together because I think they both had things we need. But, but anyway, that's my opinion. I think we're going to get Trump. I don't think we're going to like everything he does. I think we're not going to like a lot of what he does. And a lot of what he does is not going to be good. But he's going to do some things we really need to have done. And I can tell you this from a person, I can't give you details, but he is deeply committed pro-life because of a personal situation that he never wants to talk about, but he is just, he is in on that. I don't care 
what he says. He doesn't want to go into the details, but he is probably one of the most pro-life people we're ever going to get up there. He is deeply committed to putting the right judges on the court that are committed to the Constitution. And that, and to me, that alone, I would go for him. He's really serious about that. If you look at his way of vetting the judges so that we don't keep getting these guys we think are conservative judges or, and, uh, or not activist judges, and then they get on the court and it turns out different. And, uh, but <clears throat> also, let me share this with you. If any of you are interested, one other thing, okay? Because these are some of the most asked questions. I was asked to be on little committee. It's really an ad hoc committee to s develop this one policy for Trump. Now, I've been in a lot of communication with these guys. I've not yet heard the first political question. Not yet heard, I haven't heard anything political. You know, he feels like this thing's won. He is so confident, he feels it's won. Only thing I hear, have ever heard him talking about or his, any of his key people were, how do we fix things? How do we address these issues and get them right, fix them? Now, we talked to him, I was sitting right across the desk from him when we talked to him about some of the things he wanted to do for illegal immigrants was really gonna hurt some immigrant families unnecessarily. I saw the big tears well up in his eyes. He said, we gotta fix that, we can't let that happen. And uh, the guy's a softy inside. I'm, I'm just letting you know a secret. In a good way, you hear from the people around him the incredible compassion this guy has, which he does stuff and never tells anybody about tries to do it in secret. But um, I saw some real evidence of that. But anyway, one of my favorite guys I've met through him is one of his best friends who's a big developer like him. Never done anything with immigration or policy. Doesn't want to be in government. Doesn't want to have anything to do with any of that. He just loves Trump and he loves his country. So he kind of helped you know, with this committee and uh, that Trump asked him to, and he went after this problem that, you know, our country's been facing for decades now without answers, and in no time came up with the most incredible solutions I've ever heard to the degree where I, I heard people saying, we ought to submit this now, because nobody could vote against this on, in either party. It was the most amazing thing. Supernatural words of wisdom from above came down. You know, that's what a word of wisdom is. It's wisdom beyond men. But it wasn't, it wasn't, the problem was not addressed through political eyes or in a political way. It wasn't even a part of it, the conversation. Nobody was thinking, who's going to like this part or not like this part? It's how do we fix it? laid out all the problems, what are the solutions, how do we fix them, let's come down to the main solutions, then cross-check them like a business person would. Be sure that this solution up here isn't messing up this down here and creating other problems in other places. We just cross-check everything, then bring in all the people you could imagine to look at this thing from every perspective 
and nobody could say anything was wrong with it. Say, this thing works. I said, man, if our government could be run by leaders instead of politicians, we can get out of this mess. We can really get out of this quagmire that we're in. But just watching that process, and I was just on, just a part, I didn't add too much, but uh, I was so encouraged by that experience. We need leaders. We need leaders in the church who are not politicians, who make decisions on what they're going to preach on, on what the people need, what God is speaking, not what somebody's going to like or not like. It's what we need. It's what is needed and what is the word of the Lord. I tell you, this political correctness has got the church tied knots just as bad as the government and everybody else. And we can never be what we're called to be as long as we're carrying that yoke. Paul the Apostle said, if I were still seeking to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Galatians 1.10. I think the degree to which we are compelled to please everybody or anybody, but the one we're called to serve, we have compromised our service to him, to that one. We will not be a bondservant of Christ. So, I'm getting ready. I'm mad. I was so angry at this common core, what they're trying to cram down our children's throats. You know what else they did? They're changing the, the SAT test so that you won't be able to pass SAT unless you go through the common core. It's sick. It's evil, and it's sick. It will very quickly have us at the bottom of the world in education. Not only that, the evil and the perversion that it releases into little children. We can't let this happen. We let this happen to our kids. It, what's the difference in that and what they used to do, sacrificing them to the false gods? I tell you, we've got to stand up to this stuff. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Thanks for listening to our Sermon of the Week. Visit wordalive.org for more content from Word Alive International Outreach.